All right, well, it has certainly been a strange time. And of all the stories that are coming out of this coronavirus season, one that grabbed my attention that I thought to be interesting and even a little bit funny is the story of Olivia and Raul de Freitas. I don't know if you heard of what happened to them, but this couple uh, got married right in the middle of March, and they had planned a honeymoon to the Maldives of immediately following their wedding, and they went there uh, to enjoy the tropical paradise, the pristine beaches, and the five-star resort they had reserved for their honeymoon. Little did they know that things would go completely not as planned as all the places around them began to lock down and to go on quarantine, and suddenly flights are not available. Uh, they were instructed to go home, and everyone else in their resort, their five-star resort, ended up leaving and being able to get out of there. Raul and Olivia, however, had to stay. They had to stay stranded, get this, in a five-star resort on some tropical islands with pristine beaches, the whole resort to themselves, everybody who's on staff, actually kind of a funny thing, the staff had a policy that they can't go home as long as there are people still staying at the resort. And so as long as them, as they were there, just the two of them, the entire staff had to stick around. And so they got all the attention of the staff. They had a, a room boy come into their room five times a day. At one point, the whole dining staff prepared this amazing uh, dinner on the beach for them. They were the only ones there, and they got all the attention of all the staff. You might be thinking, what a life, right? Living in the tropics, away from all the cares of the world, all by yourself with all the staff attending to your every need. Well, maybe not. According to Olivia, she says, and I quote, everyone says they want to be stuck on a tropical island. Maybe you've been saying that these days. Man, if you could just get stuck on a tropical island right now, it would be pretty fantastic. She says, everyone says they want to be stuck on a tropical island until you're actually stuck. It only sounds good because you know you can leave. Isn't that funny? Uh, this ideal situation, pristine beaches, five-star resort, a staff paying to attention to your every need, and still at the end of the day, you're wishing you could be somewhere else. I don't mean to blame her, uh, Raul and Olivia in the slightest. I simply want to point out, isn't that interesting? It's something about the human condition that, that there's a, a rest that we're looking for that's really not attainable by the perfect external conditions, right? I mean, even if you were set on that island and given all your needs uh, attended to, and even if you were in the most beautiful place in the, on the planet, uh, there's still always this sense of lack of rest, discontent. It's almost as if this world isn't our home. The Bible actually has a lot to say about what true rest is. It's more than just having peaceful conditions. It involves an inward rest, a rest of the soul, a rest in your mind and in your heart, a calm, a peace. 
It often eludes us even when our circumstances are exactly how we'd want them to be. The idea of rest is all throughout Scripture. In Genesis chapter 2, after God creates the world in six days, the Bible says that on the seventh day, he rested. It wasn't that God was so exhausted he needed to take a breather. It was that God was setting up a pattern for his creatures. The people that he would make, he's going to show them that you work six days, and on the seventh day, you rest. He set that day aside, and he made it holy. He consecrated it. He, he set it apart and made it a unique day to be set aside for him. In, Genesis, or in Exodus chapter 16, the idea of resting on the Sabbath is even given to the people of Israel. It's, it's then put into the, the, the Ten Commandments that God requires of his people that they rest one day a week. And you might even ask yourself, well, who did God uh, create the Sabbath for? Was it, was it so that people could be relieved and so it's for them? Or is it for God so that he could be worshipped on that day? And the answer is uh, yes. <laughs> the Sabbath was made so that uh, men and women would rest. They would experience a refreshment and even a joy. And at the same time, it was made so that they would be looking to God who made them and created them. And as they look to their creator, they find a rest for their souls. They find a rest for their souls. Essentially, what's happening is God says, all right, here's, here's what I did. I created the world in six days, and now I rest on the seventh, and I want you to do the same. I want you to work six days, and on that seventh day, I want you to rest. And so what would you do if you're a faithful uh, Israelite? You would, you'd work Monday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. you work through the week. Uh, the first six days of the week, you work right on through, and you get to that seventh day, you get to that Saturday, and what do you do? You stop and you rest. And it's not just meant to be a physical rest. You're, you're supposed to reflect on the reality that God made the world. Okay, so day seven, I, I'm reflecting. God made all this. He made everything. Okay, so you then get back to work again. You work all six days, and then you get to that seventh day, and what do you do? You pause and you reflect. God made all this. God made the universe with his word. He, he spoke it into existence. All of this is his. And then you get back to work, and you work another six days, and you get to that seventh day, and what do you do on that seventh day? You pause, and you say, he made the entire universe. You could even reflect on maybe the work you've done, and you can compare it to the work God has done. And you go, wow, God is a creator. All of this is his. He upholds it all by his power. All of this is made by my God. And then you get back to work. And listen, when you do that, it doesn't only rest the body, it rests the soul. And so that was the pattern for mankind. And then we move into the New Testament, and Jesus actually says, come to me if you're weary and you're burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, rest is not just a day of the week. Now, rest is in Christ. The rest from our soul comes from looking to Jesus and saying, he is my Savior, my Lord. He is my provider and protector. He's my keeper. He is my friend. And as we come to him, he gives our souls rest. You will find rest for your souls, Jesus says. Hebrews chapter 4 confirms this, that the Sabbath for the people of God is for everyone who believes. And so by faith, we, we work in the lives that God has called us to work, but then we look to God, not just one day a week, all throughout our days, we are looking to God and remembering He made it. He owns it. It's all His. And He has invited me to be His child. 
and my sins are forgiven in Christ, and I'm saved, and I'm adopted, and all that he's upholding, he's upholding for his glory and for my good. And then you know what you do? You rest. It's a rest for the soul that God has given us. Now, that rest is always threatened by our own tendency to believe that we have to somehow earn it. There's an unrest that we are always tempted to drift into, isn't there? There's a drift toward anxiety. There's a drift toward a nagging unsettledness. And that always comes from not resting in grace. Not resting in the gospel. It comes from trying to manufacture our own religion, our own rules, our own expectations for ourselves. And as soon as those begin to uh, rule the day in our hearts and our minds, as soon as those become the dominant factor of how we live our Christian lives, we drift into chronic anxiety, constant fear, soul unrest. And so Jesus is always calling us back to him who says his burden is easy, his yoke is light, and that he gives rest for our souls. I want to turn to Mark chapter 2, and I want to show that the Pharisees here had refused to understand God's invitation to the rest of the Sabbath, uh, the sole rest of the Sabbath, and what they had done is they had drifted toward an external righteousness. The relationship that God wanted with them turned into a hard and rigid religion. Instead of there being love, there was now just simple and cold law. The freedom of the relationship with God had now become slavery, and the Pharisees had adopted a system where they thought that they were loved by God, right with God, approved by God, and approved by people because of their ability to keep all the rules. This is what we dealt with a little bit last week. Jesus had to explain that you can't mix the Pharisees' way of religion with what Christ is bringing. You can't mix those things. They, they don't mix. You've got to have a free gospel or you have works righteousness in which you become a slave, but you can't mix. If you try to mix works righteousness and the gospel, you get neither. You get neither. And so now we come to a section where the Sabbath is kind of at the center. Actually, the next two sections, the Sabbath takes a central part of the dialogue between Jesus and the rule-keeping Pharisees. Let me read the section that we're going to look at, and then we'll start unpacking it. One Sabbath, this is chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. He said to them, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of 
the Sabbath. Let's start looking at what's happened here. That's the Sabbath, of course. The first verse indicates, verse 23, and what the disciples are doing is they're with Jesus, and it says they're walking through some grain fields. As they're walking through, they're plucking some of the heads of grain, and they're eating them. It was a common thing to do. In fact, I'll have you know that Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, explicitly makes it clear that this was an okay and legitimate thing for people to do in the Old Covenant. Uh, This was totally within the boundaries of law. It says explicitly, if you're in a neighbor's grain field and you're walking through, you are actually allowed to pick some and eat some. What you're not allowed to do, the law says in Deuteronomy 23, is you're not allowed to grab a sickle or some sort of tool to harvest someone else's grain. And so what they're doing is perfectly legitimate. Now, you'll notice in verse 24 that the Pharisees begin accusing Jesus and the disciples of doing what is not lawful. Why would they say that? Because clearly the Old Testament says that what they're doing is lawful. Well, what's going on here? I want to have you know, and we've, uh, we've talked about this before, that the Pharisees loved rules. Man, they loved their rules. Their rules were the way that they followed God, or so they thought. And if the Old Testament made a law, if God had an actual requirement, here's what they like to do. They'd build a fence around that. They, they, they wouldn't want to get too close to violating that law, and so they would build a fence, an extra rule, an added rule so you don't break the original rule. Then that rule would be not enough, and so to, to make sure they didn't break the rule that was guarding the rule, they would add another rule uh, outside that rule. And then they would say, no, we got to be even more holy, to be even more apart from ever even getting close to sin. We're going to build another fence around those ones. And so a rule upon rule was added to the Pharisees' way of life to the point where you had an intricate system of rule-keeping that they thought was keeping them away from sinning. Uh, Let me give you an example of this. It's actually in the Talmud, and it was common in the Pharisees. This is what they thought, uh, that that they, they actually created 39 activities that were forbidden on the Sabbath. It's actually, it's really funny. 39 activities that are forbidden on the Sabbath, things like planting, things like winnowing, things like sorting, all these things would be considered work, and since you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath, any kind of work was off limits. And to define work, they had all these activities that were off limits. One of the activities was planting. You weren't allowed to plant anything. Now you say, okay, that makes sense. Planting is probably working. Uh, except for the fact that they went beyond merely just talking about planting, get this. If you had a chair and you picked that chair up and you dragged the legs of that chair across the ground, you would make little indents into the dirt. That was counted as creating a furrow that would maybe potentially make it more easy to plant a seed in And so if you wanted to move a chair, you couldn't drag the feet on a Saturday because that counts as planting. Or if you sat in that chair and one of those back legs, you put a little more pressure on it, it sinks into the ground, oh, you've just violated the Sabbath there too because you've created a hole. And if a seed were to fall into that hole, then you would be in violation of uh, the rule that you're not supposed to plant because planting's not allowed on the Sabbath because work's not allowed on the Sabbath. Even if you didn't have any intention to throw a seed in that hole, you were in violation. Here's another one. If you had some peanuts that you wanted to eat on the Sabbath, 
And, and let's imagine that these peanuts have already been taken out of their shells. You just have a bowl of peanuts, and you pick one up, and it still has that little brown coat on it. This is actually specifically mentioned in these 39 activities. I was reading through them. It's fascinating. If you pick up a peanut, it still has a little brown coating on it. And if you take it and you brush it off or you, you blow on that peanut and you blow away some of the, the extra little skin that's there, you've just violated the Sabbath. Because winnowing, it, it is so specific that you can't even do any of that. Here's another one. This is where it gets you. This is, this is just fun to think about all the things you can't do on the Sabbath. If you had a bowl of raisins and peanuts, you were not allowed to sort them, uh, taking all the peanuts out one at a time and getting the raisins, leaving the bowl filled with raisins so you could eat those. That would be considered work. That would be under the category of sorting. You're not allowed to do any sorting on the Sabbath. Uh, so no, no sorting laundry, no sorting food. Uh, but what you were allowed to do was just take the raisins straight out of the bowl into your mouth if you wanted the raisins, because that doesn't count as work because you're not actually sorting them. Is this getting crazy enough for you? This is how the Pharisees thought. They weren't allowed to work. Uh, they thought, okay, we want to make a system where we, we can't work, and so it was law upon law upon law upon law. Uh, let me just even go into another even sillier example. The Arab, E-R-U-V, the Arab. Maybe you've never even heard of that. What was that? Well, on the Sabbath, you weren't around, allowed to travel. You weren't allowed to go out of your home. And so uh, there was some thinking, well, we have some things that we want to do on the Sabbath. And so what they made up another rule to kind of give them a little bit of a loophole, that if one house was connected to another house, you could treat them both as one house and travel from one to the other. Okay, and so they would all count as one house. So what they would do is they'd grab a string, they'd call it an Arab, and they'd attach houses that they wanted to travel around on the Sabbath. So they're not supposed to travel, but they're making loopholes so they can travel. But then it expanded a little bit, and they thought that let's make this a little more easy on us. And they just got a string, and they would wrap it around an entire community of houses. And if the string was connected, if it was unbroken, all of that community counted as one house. So basically, you could travel wherever you wanted within the era of on a Sabbath. And so this whole rule about not going anywhere, yeah, you can get around it by an Arab. Now, this is actually something that has been carried into modern day. In fact, the biggest Arab in the world, most likely, is the Los Angeles Arab. The 10 freeway, the 405, and the 101, except it's not string anymore. It's a Kevlar cable that runs through the median of these freeways, and it maintains a 40-square-mile uh, area where Orthodox Jews even today can, on the Sabbath, go wherever they want without fearing that they're violating their work principles on the Sabbath. Now, you say you're a, a fear, uh, you want to be a law-abiding Jew. What if a, a Mack truck runs in the 405 medium and breaks that Kevlar cable and your air of is broken and now suddenly, well, thanks to the rabbis in the sky program, I'm not joking, uh, every Friday, rabbis get up in their helicopter and fly around the perimeter and make sure that the Kevlar cables are, in fact, still intact. And then they report, and you can follow on Twitter, LA Arab, at LA Arab, and you can see live updates of if the Arab is, in fact, still intact. And if it is intact, then on Saturday, you can basically do whatever kind of work you want because you're all still in your house. Is this insane yet? <laughs> this is crazy. And I think you can see that the rules 
that they have made were actually invented to circumnavigate the actual principle of rest. It was more work to keep the Sabbath than to actually do what God intended. You're working so hard just to try to follow the rules. Now, here's what Jesus does in verse 23. He just walks straight into some grain fields. He starts picking these uh, pieces of grain with his disciples. And you could just imagine the Pharisees watching and they're getting livid. They're like beginning to boil and they're going, Jesus, you're doing what's unlawful. How are you doing this? Don't you care about the Sabbath? Here's, Here's our first principle. This is what Jesus has to say to Pharisees both then and now. He he says, not with his words, but certainly with his actions, he says, your religious rules don't need to be followed. They've created this elaborate system, and Jesus is absolutely defying it. Why? Because he wants to expose that their system is a fraud. It doesn't create godliness. It's not the intent of God. These Pharisees think they're godly for keeping all their crazy rules to the very meticulous last detail. And Jesus just walks right in and violates them all on purpose because he wants to say, your rules are worthless. I don't need to follow them. My disciples don't need to follow them. And listen, I want to say this to us, that listen, Christians, we are called to follow Jesus, to follow him. And we do not need to be crushed by some of the religious expectations of people around us. And we need not to be the kind of Pharisaic person who creates certain expectations and then turns them into divine law and then expects other people to live by those. We must conform to Jesus Christ. So yes, be disciplined. Yes, go hard after Jesus. Yes, beat your body like Paul. Run the race. Say no to temptation. But do not create laws for yourself. Make them into laws for all humanity. And then judge those who don't meet your standards. One family trick-or-treats on Halloween. Another family reenacts Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. One family watches Disney. The other family is strictly VeggieTales. One family likes to enjoy a certain hobby that the other family doesn't particularly like. One man plays video games, the other man reads books. Let's not make divine our preferences and then judge people who don't do what we think we should do. Paul talks about it like this in Romans 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Here's this principle. Each one, each person should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. So verse 10 says, so why do you pass judgment on your brother? 
Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Listen, we're all going to stand before God for the decisions we make in life. And so we're not to be walking around assuming that because people aren't living my way and abiding by my rules, I can't assume that they're walking in sin. Because our religious rules... It is good for us to be disciplined. It is good for us to have standards. It is bad for us to raise those to the standard that is for all people and then judge people according to our man-made standards. We're all going to have different things that we choose to do. Isn't most of life lived in the gray areas? The Bible doesn't tell you what shirt to put on this morning, what food to eat. The Bible doesn't tell you who you should talk to today or specifics about what activities you're supposed to prioritize. There are principles that all of us live by, but the specifics are not always there. So what do we do? We're gracious with one another. We assume the best from one another. We don't immediately assume that someone who's doing something differently is sinning. Now listen, we do have the right, even the obligation, as a church family, to help one another conform to Jesus Christ and his written word. But we do not have the right to expect people to conform to standards we've made up and to bind the conscience to something that Scripture does not teach. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They had elevated their own rules. They had made them divine rules, and then they imposed them on everyone. And everyone who didn't meet those standards, they condemned. Let's not do that because that will crush the gospel witness of our church. It will destroy the unity of our church. And let me tell you, it will suck out the joy of our church. It will absolutely slow down and even bring to a screeching halt our ability to present and live out the realities of the gospel. So Jesus, after that, uh, moves on. He, he, he tells them, basically, your rules are not worth following. That's why I'm just going to ba- break them as I go through, the sa- or go through these grain fields. And then, after they accuse him, Jesus responds. Okay, they accuse him of breaking the law on the Sabbath. And now look at verse 25. Have you never read which, you know, ouch, if you're a Pharisee, have you never read? Your whole lives were meant reading and studying the Old Testament. Have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, what an interesting passage to bring up. He's, he's actually bringing up 1 Samuel 21. And it's a fascinating passage, but let me just give you a little context here. David is fleeing from Saul. His life is in danger. He's running for his, for, to, to, to be safe from him, because Saul's at this point kind of a raving lunatic, wants to kill David. And so David's on the run. He comes to the priest at a place called Nob. He comes in, and the priest's like, what's going on? What are you doing? And David basically fabricates a story. He tells a lie is really what he's doing. He tells the priest there, he goes, "Uh, I'm on a secret mission from the king. I'm really hungry. 
I'm here with my people. Uh, give me some food. I need some food. I'm really hungry. The priest goes, um, we don't have any food, only the, 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 the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence was meant to be uh, baked on the Sabbath by the priest. The priest set it out for the week, and it was kind of there as a always reminder of God's provision for us, that he provides the sustenance we need. And, and so the bread of the presence was very a holy kind of thing. And, and David wasn't supposed to have it. It was only to be consumed by the priests. Well, David comes in. He's saying he's hungry. He's telling, I'm on a secret mission from the king. None of this is true except for the fact he is hungry. He says, give me the bread of the presence. The priest kind of goes, okay, and gives it to David. And David eats it up. And then uh, he, he goes on his way. Uh, the, the, the bad guy of the story is a man named Doeg who's kind of watching and he, he sees what's happening and he reports back to Saul that, oh, David was there at Nob with the priest at Nob and once Saul hears about it in his rage, he goes and they wipe out 85 priests, slaughtering them um, that day. Say, so, okay, what is Jesus doing bringing up this story? Here, just notice some of the contrast. David is the anointed king He's going and he's lying, and he's taking bread that doesn't belong to him. See that? Jesus, in our text in Mark, is the true king. He's not violating any laws, and he's doing, he's taking the grain. He's taking it for himself, but he's doing it in a perfectly legal way. Now, what's happening? Uh, to, To understand this, you need to understand that the Pharisees loved David loved David. David was their man. David was the ideal king. David was the one that was like a Messiah figure to them. If they could just have another David, all would be well. If they could get the king of David to come back, they would be thrilled. They wanted David so badly. Even just someone who could be, you know, 90% of David would be someone that they would hail as a great king. And here is Jesus pointing out that he lied that he took wasn't his, and all of that activity resulted in the death of 85 innocent priests. Jesus brings that up to the Pharisees. You know why? He's exposing something. He's exposing their inconsistency. They're willing to overlook David and his failures and sins, but they look at Jesus and they condemn him even though he had done nothing wrong. Here's what Jesus is saying to Pharisees now. He's saying to them, your religious rules are hypocritical. Your religious rules are totally hypocritical. You use them against people that you don't like to condemn them, but you are lenient with people you like to relieve them. In other words, it's not about the rules For the Pharisees, it's never really about the rules. At the end of the day, what's it about? It's about power and control. That was how you became an elite is if you kept the rules. If they could keep the rules, they could use the rules to prop themselves up, and they could use the rules to prop or to get others out, and that's exactly what they're doing. Since David, they felt, was on the in crowd, they were able to overlook his failures, and because Jesus was on the out crowd, because he didn't conform to their standards, they used the rules to condemn them. But this is how hypocrites use their laws. They create laws, and they are inconsistent with them because they want to use the laws to bolster themselves up in pride 
and to beat down others. This is how it works. And this is why Jesus railed on hypocrites. Jesus hates hypocrisy. I mean, the harshest invectives were reserved for the hypocrites. Read Matthew 23. Jesus is like no more Mr. Nice Guy, and he just attacks the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in that chapter. And here, he's exposing the hypocrisy. He's showing them that you apply standards only when it's convenient, only to get what you want. Now, friends, if we sit here and think about this, honestly, we have to ask ourselves some questions, don't we? Are we like the Pharisees in this way? Do you create standards for yourself, or for, sorry, for others? That you expect them to do a certain thing, live a certain way, but you don't hold yourself to those same standards. It's like when you're driving on the freeway, and the person in front of you crosses that double yellow line, and it is a crime. You're outraged. Oh, the humanity, they crossed the double yellow line. And five minutes later, you cross the double yellow line and you think to yourself, well, I, I had to do it. <laughs> Get over it, everyone else. I had to do it. How often we create standards that we press on other people and then excuse ourselves if we want to just squeeze the life out of any genuine relationships we have the, the, the first ingredient is this kind of hypocrisy that lays expectations on the people around us and yet at the same time refuses to walk in them ourselves. Parents, you want to crush your kids? Do this. Teach them how important it is to submit to authority while you badmouth authority and blow it off yourself. Teach them to value honesty and truth-telling and tell white lies. Cover yourself up. Talk about kindness, and generosity, and sharing. And then be stingy and irritable. Tell them to always give one another the benefit of the doubt. And then always be suspicious that they're up to something. In all these ways, very small ways, we often create certain standards that we expect others to live by and then we ourselves don't even abide by. That's what the Pharisees did with Jesus. It's absolutely crushing to relationships when we do this. When we're so strict with what others should do, so lenient on ourselves. What we actually should be is so gracious with others. Let me encourage you to be so understanding, so slow to anger, so patient. Love covers a multitude of sins. To have that kind of love that is willing to cover the sin rather than point the finger and accuse. See, our religious rules, when we're being hypocritical, turn into bats that we use to beat the people around us, and they're not helpful. So Jesus exposes this hypocrisy, 
And he moves on to verse 27. Now he says, verse 27, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, what he means here is the law that God had given of the Sabbath was made to draw people into rest, into delight, into real refreshment. But the Pharisees had turned this Sabbath into a cruel taskmaster. They were enslaved to the Sabbath. And that's why they devised all these rules and all these loopholes to try to get around what they thought was a taskmaster, when really if they had understood the Sabbath, they would have been drawn to God, a a true relationship with God. That's what the Sabbath was all about. Pause your life. Think about me. Think about my greatness. Think about my creation. Think about my provision. Think about who I am. Think about me and rest. And in our day, think about Christ. Let your soul find rest. He goes on, and he makes this stunning statement in verse 28. So the Son of Man, that's referring to himself. This is, yes, a sign of his humanity, a word that indicates that he is human. But obvious to the listeners of his day, this is a reference to Daniel 7, that he, in fact, is God. Son of man, he is making the claim that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Listen, the Pharisees would have understood this immediately. When you're claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, and every Pharisee and every Jew knew that the Sabbath was created by God, that the Sabbath was instituted and set up by God, it was invented by the Creator God, after he created, he created the Sabbath. If Jesus is saying that he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's sovereign of the Sabbath, you know what Jesus is saying, don't you? He is claiming to be the very creator of the universe. He's saying, I am the one who created in six days and rested on the Sabbath. I invented the Sabbath. I'm Lord and sovereign of the Sabbath. It's my Sabbath. (laughs) I'm the one who created all things in six days and rested on the seventh. I'm the one who was there in Genesis 1 speaking the universe into existence. You think that I have to abide by your puny little laws? This is my universe. This is my grain field. I created all of it. I created you. I am Lord and Master and King and God. He's saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. This would have absolutely shocked the Pharisees, and it's no wonder that by a few verses later, they're trying to kill him because they understand that this claim is either blasphemy. It can't be God, they're thinking. It's got to be blasphemy to claim to be God. Or it's true. And of course, they're not willing to say that it's true. And so they're going to say, this is blasphemy. Jesus is saying, I am Lord of creation. It's all mine. Everything. The very one who created the entire universe. 
in every field, in every stalk of grain, now walking among his own creation, enjoying the things he's made with the people he loves. And the Pharisees are here accusing creator God of violating, violating their man-made rules. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Now here's, I think, a summary, a third point here of Jesus' word to the Pharisees is this, your religious rules are a distraction. You see that? They're, they're an absolute distraction. Jesus is essentially saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath for rest, for your joy, for your refreshment, so that you would be drawn to know God and that you would be drawn to know me. I created this for your blessing. I created this for your joy. But your rules, your rules have caused you to completely miss the point. You think that you get some relationship with me by creating this intricate system of rules, 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 and you miss me because of that. You miss the point. The Sabbath is meant to lead you to me, but the Sabbath has become this taskmaster that has distracted you from me, and you don't even know me because you're so enslaved to these rules that you've made up. We don't need to conform to religious man-made rules. They only create hypocrisy in us as we think that as soon as we obey them, we're better people and more approved by God. It is only distracting. What we need and what Jesus is teaching them here in this text is that Christianity, true relationship with God, is Christ. It's not keeping the laws of the Sabbath. It's not keeping the man-made religious rules. It's knowing Jesus. He's the point of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. All laws have always been to bless his people and to point us to him. That's good news. Because again, if we have begun to think that we somehow need to follow a moral code or that Christianity is consisting of rituals and ceremonies and external uh, confirmation to some religious expectation we have, Missed it. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for him. Rest in him. Relate, have a relationship with him. Come to him to find rest. His very words say, come to me. All you who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. Inward peace that no scenario in this world can offer you. It is possible. It is possible that our religious rules distract us from Jesus Christ. Have your rules become distractions that have convinced you that you don't actually need Christ that much because you've got all these rules instead? I mean, who needs Jesus Christ and his forgiveness and his daily grace and his power in our lives? Who, who needs that when we got a billion rules to keep? And we can become righteous that way. But it's a fraud. 
You see, the more we lean into religious rules, the more Jesus becomes an abstraction, the less we actually need him. Donald Barnhouse, a preacher 50 or so years ago in Philadelphia, once asked this question. He asked the question what it would look like if the devil took over the city that he preached in. What if the devil took over Philadelphia? So what would it look like? He goes on to say, if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. He surprises us with that, doesn't he? When you think of the devil taking over a city, you think of raging outward sin, don't you? But could it be that the devil gets just as more of his devilish work done by convincing people that they're actually pretty good? And so you can almost imagine a community of people who abide by all the external rules and they have smiles on their faces and they don't go too much into any bad things. But they also don't really feel any deep need for grace. They don't feel any deep need for Jesus Christ. Because they've been so conditioned to follow all the rules, they never actually have come to see the depravity of their own heart. There's a danger in that. There's a danger that we become infatuated with the externals, and the moment we're infatuated with the externals, that is the first step away from living day by day, trusting in the grace of God. In other words, it seems like the enemy of our souls has a recipe And the recipe isn't always to lead us into external and open rebellion. The recipe to veer us away from the gospel is much more subtle. It happens over a longer period of time, and so it's slow, but it is more dangerous, and it is the subtle drift toward religiosity and external performance and self-righteousness where we become convinced that we're not all that bad actually pretty good. Friends, the gospel starts with bad news, that we're all sinners, unable and unwilling to do anything to save ourselves, but that God in his infinite love sends his son, Jesus Christ. He came, he walked among us, he taught the true way of salvation, and the true way of salvation was not religion. It was not rules. He taught us that so we would know that we are in need of repentance and there's nothing else we could do except cast ourselves at the foot of Jesus Christ and say, save me. And he goes to the cross to pay sin's penalty. And he rises from the dead victorious over death. Right now, Jesus is alive. And you don't get into heaven by trying to earn your way there. You don't get into heaven by conforming to religious expectations or conforming to an outward standards of rules. You get to heaven by saying, I have nothing. I'm bankrupt. And you say, Jesus, you're the only hope I've got. 
You say, Jesus, I need rest for my soul. I need my guilt removed. So I come to you. And when you come to Jesus, he will in no way turn you aside. Let's be the people of whom Jesus spoke when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Face reality. Take your soul to task. Own who you are. Confess your sin. And revel in the amazing grace of our loving Lord. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, thank you for living, dying, and rising for sinners. We praise you that we don't have to follow external rules and conform ourselves. We confess we often drift into hypocrisy. We know that we're often distracted by our own religious rules that we've made up. So Lord, allow us even right now to refocus on Jesus Christ. He is our rest. He is our hope. He is our salvation. We love all that you have done for us. In his name we pray. Amen.